And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Hello out there in Radio Land. Welcome to a special miniature episode of One Track Mind that I'm creatively calling OTM Mini. I am Ryan Luis Rodriguez, your wonky yet affable host and born-again cinephile. Last time on OTM Mini, we started a new Q&A, but there were just too many Qs to A in one episode. So we're extending it again. First up, quote, Which director had great promise but never made more movies for any reason, be it death or disinterest? Unquote. Well, easily it's Charles Lawton who made only one film, a 1955 masterpiece called The Night of the Hunter. I've never cared for Lawton's work as an actor, which is how he made his bones, but clearly he prioritized that over a directorial career, and accordingly, that maybe makes him the greatest director to have ever lived, simply because he never made a bad movie. He made one, and it was perfect, and who knows how things would have turned out had he kept plugging away. And, although it's stepping outside of the question perhaps, the Donnie Darko episode features the squandered promise of Neil Blomkamp, a director that probably should have stopped making movies after District 9. Next up, quote, If you could work on a movie in any capacity, what position would you want? Unquote. Well, I have always wanted to be a director, and spent my high school years trying to get myself in that position, but I was all too willing to sacrifice getting it right instead of working at something until it was perfect, simply because I wanted to get the shooting done as soon as possible. I also always wanted to be my own cinematographer, thanks to the work of Steven Soderbergh, but my own visual acumen has never been tremendously strong. I could be a good editor, because it traditionally means stepping into a situation after it's been shot, and I could resist being influenced in any direction. But I think the position I would be best suited for is first assistant director. You get to report directly to the director, you get to tell the extras what to do, you have a modicum of power, but not so much that it goes to your head. Perfect for me. Next up, quote, what directors, living or dead, would you like to hear a commentary from? Unquote. This might be my favorite question thus far. On the Patreon page, I initially wanted to cover television audio commentaries because I wanted to differentiate the private feed from the public. But then I decided to discuss Blu-rays from directors that never recorded tracks. Accordingly, the two directors I've covered thus far are Steven Spielberg and Alfred Hitchcock. In terms of Spielberg, I would die to hear a commentary from him, but he's so frank and honest in his interviews that maybe it would be redundant to put him in front of a microphone. But Hitchcock? He did a comprehensive interview with Francois Truffaut, but never really sat down for a commentary proper, and I would love to peer into the multiverse and see what he really thought about Rear Window. Other directors and creatives I wish I could hear from, Orson Welles. I'd love to get his unvarnished feelings on the completed version of The Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, Brian De Palma, who may have sat down for the definitive interview in his self-titled 2015 documentary, 
but I would love to hear what he has to say about body double from scene to scene. Same goes for Scarface. I would love to hear Billy Wilder discuss 123 or Sunset Boulevard or Sabrina, and naturally, I would kill, literally kill, tell me who to kill, to hear Jim Henson talk about literally anything on a track. We still have surviving members of the Muppet troupe like Frank Oz, but to get to the head honcho on the record, there's nothing better, right? Next up, quote, What's the funniest commentary you've ever heard in terms of witty banter or unusual approach? Unquote. It doesn't get mentioned enough, but James Wen's commentary for Birdemic Shock and Terror gets my vote for most underrated track. He basically has one or two things to say and stretches them out over the course of 90 minutes, almost as if his brain shuts down and then reboots every five minutes. Then he restates his thesis in a slightly different way. I actually planned on doing a Patreon episode on it back when this was the Coolness Chronicles, but it gets redundant really quickly, and I can understand if it doesn't have the same effect on anyone else. The second commentary on Jersey Girl is an old favorite, and had I not already done two Kevin Smith tracks before, I probably would have done it at some point. And of course, Armageddon without which this podcast would never exist. Next up, quote, Has a commentary track ever made a movie worse for you? Unquote. Yes. Go back and listen to the Donnie Darko Director's Cut episode. I walked into that all the way back in 2004 as one of the film's biggest fans, and I walked away completely disillusioned, like the Wizard of Oz hiding behind his curtain, just being pulled out. It's one of those examples where everything interesting about a movie is revealed and none of the answers are satisfactory or tolerable. Next up, quote, which movies exemplify great screenwriting in your opinion? Unquote. I'm going to focus on the last 30 years because I have two interesting answers. There are two examples. Joss Whedon's script for the first Avengers is a masterclass. It took elements from disparate films with very little connective tissue and created this rousing blockbuster that sums up the universe it's essentially creating and presents new avenues to pursue in the future. If you don't like the MCU, fine. I'm okay with it. I don't really care. Whether you like Whedon or not, and let me stress that I am a former fan, it's hard to argue with his sense of structure. And, of course, the obvious example is Back to the Future. Everything that is promised is paid off. Everything can be traced back to its origin. It's completely satisfying from end to end and really exemplifies how easily everyone else phones something in. Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale were at the peak of their powers in 1985, although I think Used Cars is pretty solid, too. Next up, quote, what movies would you like to record a full solo commentary on? End quote. Good question. There are quite a few. Uh, Jurassic Park, simply because I've seen it so many times and digested so many bits of information over the wide gulf of time and could never run out of things to say. North by Northwest, which was once my favorite film ever made, and in terms of its place in the Hitchcock pantheon, 
It's the peak of the mountain. Uh, Marty Scorsese's Casino. It's three hours long, so I might need to stretch. But there's not a single moment where there's a low, unbreakable, because M. Night Shyamalan is never going to record a commentary on any of his films. I might as well pick my favorite. And Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. I've seen all three versions and can add my two cents. Uh, Duel, one of the greatest debut features and at a trim 90 minutes. Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, the most gorgeous film I've ever seen projected in a theater, would give me a chance to say, ooh, I like this scene, in any given scene. Uh, My Neighbor Totoro, my favorite Miyazaki, and of course, The Muppet Movie. It's the rare film that I could discuss for twice as long as the runtime, so they'd have to play the movie again in order to get my complete thoughts. Next, quote, When have you done a complete 180 on a film? From loving it to hating it, and from hating it to loving it, and what was it that caused the switch? Unquote. Okay, hear me out. First, Deadpool. I went from regarding it as one of the best comic book films to, in the span of a year, hating a great deal of it mainly because it uses irony to get away with truly ghastly bits of writing, as if calling attention to a weakness is a justification for being guilty of that weakness. Uh, Superman Returns, which upon seeing it in the theater, I felt was an underrated secret masterpiece, but the more I watch it, the more I am disappointed by how ugly it looks and how sluggishly it moves. It's a film that I would love to defend, but it gives me no reason to do so. John Wick Chapter 2. I was so disappointed in the theater, having adored the first chapter, so much so that I refused the opportunity to see Chapter 3 at the cinema, watching it instead with my dad on VOD, only to revisit the film years later and finding it better than the original, just in terms of how it looks alone. Peter Jackson's King Kong one of the most self-indulgent vanity pieces ever made, and I've noticed recently, accordingly brilliant. If only self-indulgence was this satisfying every time. Uh, you're gonna hate me for this one. Mad Max Fury Road, which I'm ashamed to admit I didn't like in the theater. Even suggested to my little brother that we walk out. I know, I was a dumbass, you don't need to tell me. It's the greatest action film of the century. And, of course, Speed Racer. I used to view movies as good or bad depending on how well they reflected the reality that I've known, not understanding that it was deliberately artificial and all the more brilliant for it. Quote, What has surprised you the most in your time doing the podcast? Unquote. That I've been doing it for five years, almost to the date. Also, I'm terrible at promotion and networking. Sorry. You said surprised me. Hmm. I'm genuinely surprised that I'm still doing it. Not only that, but that I'm doing it and a Patreon and another show and yet another show. I've sometimes doubted my own ability to dedicate myself to things, especially things that are very hard. But it's been a while and I'm actually getting better. So there's something there. Quote, If you could go back and edit one thing into the pod, what would it be, unquote. Obviously, dobacks. 
Every episode in the first half of season one would have 12% more dobacks. I also may have been a little excessively harsh on Battle Beyond the Stars and Mask of the Red Death back in our Roger Corman episode of The Coolness Chronicles. May have. There are random things in every episode that will just materialize in my brain at random intervals, days or weeks or months or years later, where I think, I shouldn't have said that, or that breaks my rule of not being a dick, and I should go back and cut it out. But then I work up a good solid belch and I move on. Quote, What was your start in podcasting like, and what do you think has helped you develop where you are now with it? Unquote. My start was really rough. I didn't know how to introduce myself into the community and reach out to other podcasts or get myself out there, which hasn't changed much, to be truly honest. But I think that when you don't have roots or a support structure, the start is always going to be rough. That was coupled with my having absolutely no idea of what I was doing. And because I had no structure, having no feedback to tell me if I was going in the right direction was a little dismaying. The first 20 hours of the show were completed without a single person telling me whether or not it was tolerable to listen to. And I wish I could have done that over again. In terms of developing, people reaching out and telling me that they enjoyed the show helped me get more comfortable. As a benefit of my being hypercritical of myself, uh, I'm never really satisfied with my work, so I don't rest on my laurels and say, well, people clearly love this, so why try harder? If people enjoy the podcast now or enjoy it in the future, it's because I will comb through my scripts and always say, this can be better. This can be funnier. This doesn't really say anything. Or this pause could be shorter. Do a second take. Polish that clip. The downside is that even if I were to make a masterpiece episode, I would think it was garbage. So it's complicated. Quote, Are there any episodes of CC, OTM, or ROJ that you would like to redo and why? Unquote. Well, for ROJ, that's Reels of Justice, it sounds like a running joke at this point, but Jason takes Manhattan. It was a case of me going in with far too much confidence and not really enough incisive arguments, despite a mountain of evidence against it, and being so concerned about being disrespectful to the fans of this series that I ended up saying absolutely nothing, nothing of consequence. Our guest was an absolute mensch, but I really pissed that one down my leg. Also, Paddington 2. I didn't stick up for myself, even though I had the high ground, to quote Star Wars Episode 3, and I had the better film. But only on our Appeals of Justice episode that I secured the win for everyone's favorite marmalade-loving bear. For Coolness Chronicles, I would like to re-record most of the early episodes just for a sense of aesthetic consistency. I'm proud of the writing, and although the clips are too long, they're well-considered and sourced, but I hadn't gotten the sound of it yet. One Track Mind? There are one or two episodes that I'm not satisfied with, but I'll never tell you what they are. Wink! It's a strange contradiction. I don't particularly enjoy being mean to people, 
particularly artists, because I like to think of myself as one, albeit a low-rent one. And I know that if, I, if negative energy were aimed in my direction, I wouldn't take it well. But mean things are invariably more fun to say, especially when I get angry and worked up and the hate just flows. Movies I don't like lend themselves more to comedy. Talking about things I love is not terribly funny, and I have to bend over backwards to make those things amusing. But there's this rush of endorphins when I get five or ten minutes to say nothing but positive things. Quote, stuffing or potatoes, unquote. I actually had stuffing for the first time a few years ago. So I've always been a potato guy, and even though I'm totally into stuffing now, I'm still team potato all the way. But I will eat both together with gravy, a little turkey, and a roll or two. Quote, What artists deserve Bohemian Rhapsody Rocketman-esque biopics next, but, like the aforementioned, they won't be very good. Unquote. Well, I have long maintained that the story of the Go-Go's would make a tremendous movie, because you get a snapshot of a world that is long since dead, the L.A. punk scene of the late 70s, early 80s. You have an entirely female band that wrote and performed their own songs in a decade of manufactured mall pop, and all the drugs and sex scandals that people expect from overheated biopics. Do it wrong, and it's a VH1 movie of the week. It was something I wanted to write and direct for the longest time, but will now settle for just writing and producing. Sarcasm does not work so well when you can't see my face. Other biopics that I would love to see that could easily be butchered? Obviously Prince. If you got somebody like Ava DuVernay, I think you could capture something special, but that's a real toughie. Another, quote, What is your methodology for preparing an ROJ case? Unquote. Okay, this one depends. I think I've argued 30 cases so far. And of those 30 cases, there was maybe one movie I hadn't seen before being assigned my role. So I try to break down all my prior observations, positive and negative, that I can remember, and kind of tenuously sketch out an opening and closing argument. Then I go back and watch the movie again or for the first time, and either try to fill out my initial thoughts or dispose those initial thoughts and replace them with better ones, and probably rewrite the opening and closing arguments four or five times. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Probably, definitely rewrite. Quote, what role do you like best on ROJ and why? Unquote. Jury. Always jury. Prosecution is the hardest because not only do you have to build a case, you have to lead the first act of the conversation. Defense is less hard because of that, but you still have to chime in and think on your feet. Judging would be a cinch if I were willing to cut people off or tell them to wrap things up, which apparently my hindbrain interprets as rude behavior, so it makes me a little anxious. As a juror, I get to be part of the proceedings, but if I fuck it up, it doesn't torpedo the entire affair. Plus, I get to make up a fake name to interview our guests on the court steps at the end, and I have a million of those. Finally, quote, 
if you could tell everyone one thing about podcasting, what would it be? Unquote. It's such a malleable medium. You can do anything with it. Really anything. Yes, it's good for having conversations, and that's fun and people like it, but there's so much more to be done, and it's waiting for you to do it. That'll do it for now. Stay tuned for a full-blown episode next week, and two weeks from now, we continue the odyssey known as OTM Mini. Don't forget to check us out on the social medias at One Track Mind Podcast on X. Ugh. One, that is the numeral one, Track Mind Podcast on Instagram, One Track Mind on Blue Sky, on Facebook, on Podchaser, or send an email for perhaps a future Q&A to One Track Mind Podcast at gmail.com. See you soon. Dawn, that's the end.